This morning we are gonna we're gonna start with verse 23. We touched on that the last time that we were in Acts, and remember the apostles are making a little journey here: Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, and they're on their way back, eventually to uh, Antioch and Syria. Let me show you some of my slides here. Okay, so here is a slide that shows you some of these places. Antioch near Pisidia, um, Perga, Conium, Atalia. Then uh, they will board a ship and head back to the beginning place, which is Antioch in Syria. So that is a slide from, I bought a whole big thing full of pictures that have places that we see. There is Pisidia. Look at the terrain. You know what's amazing to me was the amount of travel they did in difficult circumstances 2,000 years ago. This isn't some nice, easy place to take a stroll. Look at that terrain. Um, but they, in some of these places, were many, many days to go from one place to the other. Here is a picture of a colonnaded street in Perga that we're going to mention. And uh, the main street of Perga, according to this um, data I have on my slide, ran from the Acropolis on the northern side of the city to the Hellenistic and Roman gates. And so there were columns that were done in the reign of Tiberius, A.D. 14 to 37. So that puts us basically in that period when Paul was there. The columns supported awnings in front of the shops and protected the city's residents from sun and rain. So as we have said again and again, the places in Acts really exist. The, the things that the Bible tells us are fact, not myth, not stories, but fact, real geography, real places, real events, and God is at work on the scene of history. And here's where they would have sailed as Paul and Barnabas went past the coastline toward Antioch. Doesn't that look like a nice thing? So it's amazing how they were able to move about back in such an early time of history. So there's a, a, a picture of that. So they appointed the elders in every church, prayed with fasting, they commended the Lord, whom they believed. Somehow, as the church grew and sprung up, there were people that were uh, qualified to be elders. Eric's been preaching through Timothy, the two books of Timothy, to talk about that. And there was not some central headquarters. There were no bishops, archbishops, and hierarchical structure 
And in the church, as they gathered locally with the teaching of the apostles, they believed that God would take care of the flock. And they trusted God to do so. And they commended people to God and to his grace. And I believe that the church needs to be understood in that way. That if you have a gathering of believers, you have the word of God, you have elders and deacons, you can have church. You don't need some massive organization with a world headquarters in order for things to function. And as a matter of fact, one of the themes in Acts is taken up from Luke, in Luke Acts, and I'll be talking about that, is that they would certainly think Jerusalem is going to be the world headquarters. Somebody asked me about that last week, or a few weeks ago. But as a matter of fact, in Luke Acts, Jerusalem is, uh, ironically, the place that rejects the prophets. Jerusalem rejected Messiah, And one of the things that happens in Acts, and I was restudying that here the last couple weeks, is that very similar things happen as Paul ultimately journeys towards Jerusalem. And there was this warning from Agabus about what would happen. Somebody asked me about that. And Paul is rejected in Jerusalem, which echoes the fact that Jesus was. Now, Jesus is the unique son of God. And he died a substitutionary death for sins. Paul is an apostle of Christ, but he also journeys Jerusalem to be rejected. Now, what's not narrated in the New Testament, but we know happened, is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay? So... They would have thought that Jerusalem is the world headquarters. And they probably would have liked to make it that, but it was impossible to do so. And the reason it's impossible ultimately is God's purposes. But as far as things that actually happen, what's going on in Jerusalem was there was a Judaizing sect of Christians who wanted the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. And when Paul gets to Jerusalem, James pulls him aside and said, there are 3,000 men. Now, these were believers in Messiah who were zealous for the law. And they were the ones that started the riot. It was, it was Judaizers who were Christians who created all the problems to the point where Paul had to appeal to civil authorities and then he ended up in Rome. That's from Acts 21 through 28. So there's always this inclination amongst Christians throughout church history that we need a world headquarters. But it was going on already in Acts. But it didn't work out that way, did it? And if you read Luke Acts carefully, Jerusalem is a problem, not a solution. 
But that's not the end of the story because they kept asking Jesus in Luke 24 and in Acts 1, now are you going to restore the kingdom? And they were to wait at Jerusalem until the outpouring of the Spirit. And what Jesus said is not for you to know the times and the epochs which are fixed by the Father's authority. So what we're learning as we read the whole counsel of God on this is that at the very beginning, Jerusalem is going to reject Messiah and then reject the apostles and ultimately come under judgment, predicted in the book of Luke and also in Matthew. But it's not the end. There's a later time yet coming. That's why we believe in a future millennial kingdom that God will restore Jerusalem and he will keep all of his promises. But in between is the church age. Okay? During this entire time, from Pentecost till the rapture, there's no world headquarters. The church is organic and the head of the church is in heaven. The headquarters are at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is found... uh, Eric, if you could look up Psalm 110, and when you do, uh, comment on what Psalm 110 has to do with this whole issue of Jesus being in heaven, what's going on on the earth, and why Psalm 110 is always cited in the New Testament in many, many places. Go ahead. Psalm 110.1. And as Bob's mentioned many times, this is the most prolifically quoted Old Testament passage in the New. So if you're looking for the passage in the Old Testament that's cited more often than any other, it's Psalm 110.1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, You know what's so beautiful about that is in the Hebrew... It literally says there's an utterance between Yahweh and my Adonai. Uh-huh. And um, what's interesting is in the Hebrew, the my, it's a pronominal suffix. So it literally is David's Yahweh is saying to his Adonai, or I'm sorry, Yahweh is making utterance to his Adonai. Well, the significance of that is who could be the Lord of David? David is the greatest king on the planet because he's the king of Israel. So if you're going to be a lord over David, there's no higher authority on earth. So the only lord over David is God. And so you have Trinitarian language right there in Psalm 110. Didn't Jesus say something about that in his interaction exactly. with the Exactly, yeah. So remember, Jesus asked the question, well, whose son is the Messiah going to be? And they said, well, the son of David. Well, he cites Psalm 110.1 then and says, well, how can he be his lord? In other words, how can he be a son of David and yet also be the lord of David? And it says with that, they didn't dare to ask him any more questions. And they didn't <laughs> want to try to answer that. Yeah. yeah, but Bob, you're right. That's so significant because it shows us that Jesus is the one who has all authority. He's now, the doesn't one... he rule in the midst of his enemies? How does yes. that work? Yeah, is amen. that in Psalm 110? Yeah, in fact, it goes on to say in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will 
freely offer themselves on the day of your power in holy garments. Well, anyway, the, it starts with him in the New Jerusalem. Right now, he's at the right hand of God. But one day, it's going to extend to the earth as he descends and sets up the millennial kingdom that will be for a thousand years, as you were mentioning. On the so, earth. On the earth, right, okay. that's right. And look at verse 4 as well. That was yeah. cited in Hebrews. That's right. So this is the language from verse 4. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, remember, is a priest and king of Salem. What's unique about Christ is that he's both priest and king as well. You had exactly. priests and you had kings, but he's both. And the, the author of Hebrews uses that to prove that Jesus is ruling from heaven. Amen. That's as right. As priest and king. That's right. Okay. Now, during the church age, the world headquarters is in heaven. Amen. You can't go on a cruise ship to get there. <laughs> I know cruise ships are a sore topic right now. <laughs> but, uh, um, you can't get an airplane ticket. Well, you can get there, but you have to die. Yeah. Okay. So, and the author of Hebrews is so clear about that, that Jesus is ruling from heaven. But that doesn't mean he's not accessible. Because he hears us. He hears us. John says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. Hebrews 4, 16, we have a high priest who's uh, touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and he hears us. He brings timely help. So we have access to the Lord, but he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Now, why am I saying this? Because it's interesting, as you study church history, you see an entire uh, story for 2,000 years of Christians trying to create world headquarters here and there. And they, they try to subjugate nations. That's the Hundred Years' War. Okay? You have the Vatican. You have Constantinople. And then you have various denominations that spend umpteen millions and millions of dollars to create their own world headquarters and staff it with people with various titles for a lot of money and in the end it's always uh, run by people who don't know Christ the grandchildren of whoever founded founded it and so I'm, I'm thinking this through so I'd like to do this in Sunday school so people can respond because I just read a book and then when I'm writing my article about the book I'm going to bring all this up. Church history is part of providence. Providence contains good and evil. Church history is not normative. Okay? Why? Because during church history, from the death of John the Apostle until the rapture, during that entire time, There are no authoritative apostles on the earth. And the very earliest Christians knew that. And what we have is the authority of Scripture and a priesthood of every believer. 
There are so many people, including people that we normally would agree with, who think that church history is normative and binding. So many people believe that. But I'm saying they're dead wrong and that they cannot defend their position biblically. Because if they're going to defend it, then they have to have a promise from the apostles that says, you shall go to Constantinople and create the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church, and that's the church. You shall go to the Vatican and have a pope, and that'll be the apostle of Christ. You shall, if you're Assemblies of God, go to Springfield, Missouri, and have the president or something of the denomination. Uh, Or you shall go to Texas and have the Southern Baptist Convention, wherever they are. Or you shall go to, and you, you name it, go to somewhere in England and have the Anglican bishop, whoever's in charge. You shall do that. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. But is it ordained by Christ? And here's what I want to know. Do these people in these sitting in these world headquarters, do they speak bindingly for Christ? Or are they just simply people that are part of church history whose teachings should be judged like any teaching, including mine or Eric's or anybody else's? You may all prophesy one by one, but let the others judge. Yes, Norm. Um, as you mentioned, there's no, there was no uh, world headquarters at that time. And uh, the one thing they did have, though, they did have the apostles, yes. the original apostles. And we don't have apostles today. Exactly. But we do have their teaching today. So right. I mean, that's, that's our authority is to go to the Word and not to... World headquarters. World headquarters. Yeah. Well, see, Luther knew that. Good point, Norm. Luther knew that. I have the complete works of Luther. I'm not saying don't ch- study church history. I'd be a hypocrite if I did. I spent a lot of time studying church history. And I, I could cite lots of different people. And when I was in seminary, I took every church history course I could get my hands on because I had a great teacher, Dr. William Travis. But I studied church history in order to hone my skills at discernment. I wanted to be able to do discernment of was this good or was this bad. Church history is part of providence. God's in charge of providence. All right? Providence contains good and evil. How do I say that? Well, remember what Joseph said? to his brothers at the time of their reunion. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What had they done? Well, they had sold him out. They dumped him in a ditch and told his his dad that they were dead or that he was dead. Is that uh, Genesis 50 and verse 20 or not? Is that it? Somebody looked that up. I don't want to make a bad citation here. I think it is. Church history contains good and evil. How else do we know that? Well, we know it from what Peter preached on Pentecost. That would be um, um, 
Dan Flaherty, do you want to look up, I think, Acts 2.23? If that's the wrong one, find the right one. <laughs> it says, whom you crucified at the hands of ungodly and e evil men. I want to show you how providence contains good and evil. Okay, go ahead. Eric. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It's Genesis 50-20. You meant, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I got one right. <laughs> hey, one thing, Bob, I was going to just point out. Again, you see this idea of appointing elders. In Titus 1-5, that's exactly what Paul commands. You're to appoint elders in every church. But there's never a command to appoint apostles. Why? Well, because you only have one set of them. Yes. And that's one of the points you made in the First Corinthians <laughs> that Paul was the last of all. Yeah, 15. The last in the that was a good sermon you did. We put that up. By the way, we took Eric's sermon and we're putting it up as the CIC podcast where he talked about what apostles actually are. Okay, Acts 2.23? I hope. Yes, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right. That is a key one. Acts 2.23... I got two verses right on one Sunday. <laughs> Daylight savings time didn't hurt me any. <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, I, I'm thankful for that, by the way. Acts 2.23. But it says, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's purpose that his own son would be rejected and crucified but it was done by the hands of evil men. So God ordained what would happen, but yet those who did it are still morally culpable. The same is true, Joseph. And so when I say what I do, providence contains good and evil. God's purposes are going forward. God's purposes include what all happened in church history, but that doesn't mean it's all good or valid or to be repeated purposely. We're to learn from it. Like his brothers are to learn from what had happened. We need to learn the moral law of God. So we have the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. So when we study church history... We have to make moral decisions. Is this good or is this bad? It's true that in church history, many people believe that the church was to take in charge of nations and rule over nations and force everybody in the nations to serve Christ whether they wanted to or not. It's true that that was in church history. The Crusades were part of church history. But whether or not it's good isn't determined by the fact that it happened. And don't start thinking, well, they were closer to the time than we are, so they must have known something we don't know. I've heard that. I've heard people say that. Oh, they must have known. They go back, well, let's see what they did in 300 A.D. or 400 A.D. They must have known something we didn't know. No. We, the authority of Scripture is what we know is what's revealed in Scripture. And we can judge. So 
you go back, Rome says, obviously we're right and everybody else is wrong. Why? Well, here's their claim. Luther cited this. We are many, we are ancient, therefore we are right. That's what they said to Luther. Luther, you are wrong. You cannot be teaching justification by faith. You can't believe what you believe and teach what you believe because we have creeds, councils. We've been doing this for 1,500 years. We know what's right. Of course, they claim everything, even Peter, right? We are ancient, we are many, therefore we're right. Luther, be silent. You are censored. You can't talk. And what did he say? Scripture alone. Unless you show me from Scripture and sound reason, what sound reason got to do with it, is making valid implications and applications from Scripture, I will not be convinced. Prove it to me from Scripture. And they thought he was a renegade, a heretic, off the rails, get back in line and serve the Pope. Wouldn't do it. But there were still the seeds of air. Because what happened was with uh, Calvin and then others, they picked up and did not correct the idea that we need to rule over the nations. And so now we're going to go to war and have the Protestants rule over nations. And we're going to have a war here and a war there and a war somewhere else to find out whether this is a Lutheran country or this is a Reformed country or this is a Catholic country. Now there's an air that nobody was correcting. As if the entire church forgot that Jesus is ruling in heaven and that God appoints the rulers over the nations, Acts 17, and draws out the boundaries, and he doesn't need us. That's not the Great Commission. Yea, thou shalt go and kill the heretics and put thyself in charge. (laughs) It's not in there. And so one of the things I studied was this 100-year war. Horrible period. And the results were rearrangement on the scene of history. Uh, my ancestors were from France, and they were Huguenot, and they were Protestants who wanted to serve God through the gospel. And when the Catholics took over France, they drove them out. If you're not going to submit to the Roman Catholic Church, you can't be in France. You decide. You're going to swear allegiance to the Pope or you're going to get out. My dad had done a bunch of research in our family tree. Well, my ancestors were among the ones that got out. They went to Holland or to the Netherlands where they were free to believe the gospel. But that's church history, but is it right that the church rules over the world? Yes. Is there a distinction between the Hundred Year War and the Crusades? Or yes. The, same? the Crusades happened 500 years earlier. There were no Protestants at the time. But the point is this basic misunderstanding of the church and the authority in the church 
is found throughout church history. Why am I passionate about this right now? I've spent our vacation reading a book by a, uh, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, who's well-known and loved. But the whole thing, he actually thinks that we need to create some kind of a millennium on the earth by making peace with the world and attracting them in. And in his book, he's actually saying, and it's been done before, just look at from 500 A.D. to 1500. He sees that as good. Tim Keller sees it as good. Now, I've got to write an article about this, so I'm trying it out on you. Um, how is 500 A.D. to 1500 good? Are we going to own the Crusades? Is that good? What, what is this guy thinking about? He's post-millennial, although he won't come out and actually say that's what he is. But he's post-millennial. America in the 19th century was a post-millennial Christian country. Uh, Princeton theology from 19th century. Charles Hodge, post-millennial. Finney, post-millennial. Presbyterian, post-millennial. We're going to turn... America into a Christian nation, and we're going to make the unbelievers obey the law of Christ whether they want to or not. That was the idea. We're going to bring the millennium. Now they're saying, well, we're going to entice them rather than command them. But what if they don't want to? Well, then we're going to keep erasing the boundary between the church and the world until the church is full of unbelievers. And then we're going to make Christianize them. So I've got to write about this. That's not how you learn from church history. Postmillennialism is a lie. It's not taught in the Bible. And they say, well, there's all kinds of different views, so we can choose whichever one we want. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, Eric. I was going to, uh, just on the uh, period of time of 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., which Keller, who is one of my least, he's one of my most passionately disliked authors, by the way. <laughs> All uh, right. And I was saying that for years, so thank you for writing. And you went through uh, a, a terrible experience to read anything by him, in my opinion. But, you know, there was a little thing called Islam that came along in, a, in the late 600s. Okay? Now, I... This is speculative, but you had this thing that Tim Keller was talking about as a perfect, you know, wonderful millennial type thing. God had other ideas. He brought Islam onto the scene as judgment. And, and this is, I'm speculating, <laughs> but if it was so perfect, why did God bring Muhammad on, who truly did? I said he allowed Muhammad. Yeah, he, yeah, he allowed him to come on, and, and, and Islamic ideology is enshrined in the idea that you will force people, yeah, force exactly. them to believe. Yeah, and Islam means submit. Yeah. They don't have any idea God loving, just submit, submit, submit. Okay, but here's my bigger point. We can have this discussion only if we believe in the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And we can look at any period of church history and read and learn and study. There's some good things. There's things that I think Luther standing up for the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer is a good thing. And that when we were having 
trouble in the ministry I was a part of in the 80s. We didn't know what to do, and that's what gave me some guiding light. Because we'd seen everything go wrong in the 70s. This group, that group, the other group kind of hit the skids. And we thought, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We didn't have a world headquarters. We didn't have a, somebody say, this is the way you've got to do it. And the only thing we could think of was follow the scripture. I'm glad I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> and I was comforted by the idea of the authority of scripture, the priesthood of every believer. So when they appoint elders and they commend them to the Lord, that's not caving in. That's not inadequate. That's not failing. Because every local church has the scripture and has the grace of God. And if there's godly elders that meet the qualifications, they are not in bad hands. They're not left to flounder. They are solid in that they go to the Lord and they search the scriptures and they do the means of grace, Acts 2.42. And I've met solid Christians online version of meeting or sometimes phone all over the world through the writings. And it's amazing the people out there that love the truth. God has his people all over the world. And God will raise up churches. But we've always got to go back to the bedrock principle, authority of scripture, priesthood of every believer. We can go directly to Christ. We can search the scriptures. We can interact with one another and correct error and learn and grow and see various gifts expressed in the church. It doesn't take world headquarters. And so having spent all those hours reading that Keller book, I'm glad I'm not the only one who find it utterly distasteful. But it's just, it's also, it's, you know why? It's sociology. It's not theology, it's sociology. You study people to figure out what makes them tick, and they get really smart and design something that will work for them. Well, what about theology if it's all sociology? We don't have to worry about that. That was all settled. Westminster Confession. So he's uh, like emergent only Westminster Confession. And so whatever scripture that he has, so he's bracketed. Oh, this is true. Bracket. And on to something else. Sociology. This is true. Bracket. Oh, the Westminster divines figured it out. Did they or didn't they? Well, go back and search the scriptures and find out. That's lazy. It's lazy. If there's anybody that hears this, let me give you the advice that my teachers gave me in the early 70s. To my shame, I didn't listen to them. At the time, it took me 10 years to listen. I had to go get beat up by dumb things and then come back and listen. They had already been beat up by the Lateran movement. This was Assemblies of God. Okay? Not known necessarily for scholarship, but I happened to get there when they had some fantastic scholars. And they saw my propensities. I was a young man in my 20s. These guys that are about the age I am now saw that. Several of them said the same thing to me. Bob, 
Here's what you need to do. Learn the Greek and stay in the Bible. Oh, because they saw me, you know, watch my knee and I'm going to be pious. Nope, Bob, learn the Greek and stay in the Bible. So, all right, so I learned the Greek while I was there. Took it for two years. Got the, what tools we had then, not like what we have now, but there were tools. They were in books. And then I went off to try to find the latest, greatest move of God. But when that hit the rocks, back in the 80s, I remembered my teachers, Reverend Snow, Reverend Levine, Reverend Smith, Reverend Phillips, dear brothers who said, learn the Greek and stay in the Bible. You know what? I got all the stuff back out. I got my books back out and my concordance, my lexicons, and just did that. That was in 1983. I've been doing it ever since. Stay in the Bible. Teach the word. Okay? I don't have any world headquarters to call to come over here and straighten me out. But if you have the best reading of scriptures that I miss, that'll straighten me out. We got to submit to the authority of Scripture. So that's a lot to be said about um, church history and unity. What unites the churches is the teachings of the apostles who speak for Christ. There's our unity. There's our unity. We keep going back to the original source, which is Scripture alone. I mentioned the Westminster Confession. There are plenty of true things in there. But it's not all true. Read it as you read any church history. Judge whatever said by Scripture. If it's true, cling to it. If it's because it's scriptural, if it's false, rebuke it. Do the same thing with Luther. Luther said authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer. I say amen, amen, amen. Then Luther teaches wrong baptism. So I corrected. No, Luther, you're wrong about baptism. And here's how. Not because of me, but because of Scripture. I'm just practicing what Luther said to do. Authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer. So then they went through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. From there, they sailed to Antioch. Now, I already showed you that. Here it is. Here's where all they went. It's amazing. Now, I have some details, but if you look this up, they, these were perilous journeys. Um, they, a lot of things could happen. A lot of people died traveling, but they were willing to go on foot, by boat, whatever they did, to be able to get the gospel to new people and to encourage the churches. Notice it says when they had spoken the word. the word, And as I say in my slide, that says it all. Everywhere they went, they taught the word of God. The word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces right into the very heart of people. And That's our weapon. That's our safety. That's how we stay free from Satan. 
as I've been teaching through Ephesians, I can't wait to get chapter 6, talk about the armor of God. But that's where we need to be. Because God cannot lie, and God has spoken. The, 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 the term commended, paradidomi, didomi is to give, or giving, and uh, para is a prefix, sort of giving over, handing over to. So commended is handed over, would be a common way to say it, to God's grace and to God's word to God's care. And they committed to God's enabling power the work of the ministry. Now, this doesn't mean there weren't errors and problems. There were many. That's what the epistles are about. But we need to correct error as it arises and get back on the straight and narrow. The journey from Pisidian to Antioch to Perga was 175 miles long. According to one of my sources, about 11 days of travel. And then they went to the seaport. Let me quote Dr. Schnabel about Perga and what sort of culture they were dealing with there. Schnabel, quote, the high level of Greek education and culture in Perga is demonstrated by inscriptions that document the presence of physicians, philosophers, philologists, athletes, actors, poets, singers, mimes, musicians, and dancers, some of whom were active in other regions, for example, in Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sparta, Rome. Luke notes the return journey from Adelia to Antioch in Syria, after weeks of travel by foot, the missionary says Schnabel traveled by ship from Adelia to Antioch, a journey of about 300 miles. Luke comments in verses 26, uh, verse 26 that Antioch was the place where Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned by the church to embark on a new missionary initiative which had taken them to Salamis, Paphos, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Perga and other cities. So the word of God went forth. They taught the word. They preached the word. They went forward with the very word of God and spoke it with authority and power. And God used it to spread the gospel throughout. And see, that's still exactly the same today. The word of God has the power to totally change people's lives forever, forever. And it's amazing when you hear from people that maybe something we said or preached or wrote had an impact. Maybe you can think back in your own life when you were confused or you weren't sure what to do. Maybe before you knew Christ, you think back, do you remember when the Holy Spirit convicted you? When the light from heaven turned on in your heart, in your mind? Do you remember a time when you're confused, you didn't know what to do, but the word of God comes to you clear, 
powerful, meaningful, and now you know what to believe and what to do. Have you remember times when it seemed like there was no hope or nowhere to go or you didn't know how things would ever work out or whether you're going to live or die? I, I've been there a bunch of times. But God uses means and people pray. It's not a small thing. The word of God comforts us and he takes care of us. See, if anybody is hearing this, as a young man contemplating ministry, you've got to know this. Stay in the word. Preach the word. Teach the word. Believe the word. All the time be digging into it to learn more. Because that's what people need. And there's a dearth of it. There are people that are just crying out to know the truth. And all they get is human wisdom and entertainment. They're not getting anything powerful that will change their lives. I was thinking about the oath that they have people take when they're making testimony. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, help me, God? I do. Hopefully that's what they do. Here's something for young men or people who are going to be elders. Do you, are you willing to teach the whole word of God? Nothing but the word of God. And do so continually. The word of God, the whole word of God, nothing but the word of God. That's it. We know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Teach the word. Preach the word. The details are relevant. Not a jot or tittle will pass away until all things be fulfilled. Everything's important. Eschatology is important. Ecclesiology is important. Doctrine of the church. It's all important. If you think that church history did it all for you, you're deceived. This was a difficult and perilous mission that was accomplished by God's grace and constituted continual fulfillment of Jesus' commission. If you want to turn with me to Acts 9, 15 and 16, when Saul of Tarsus was converted, God sent a man, Ananias, the good Ananias, Pray for him. Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go. Remember, Ananias didn't want to go. I heard about him. He wants us dead. No, 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 go. Okay, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul was a chosen instrument, and he was sent, and even at his commissioning, as it were, he was shown that he would suffer much, and Acts tells us that he did. So that they had been commanded to the grace of God, and that God accomplished many things 
that have been narrated by Luke between Acts 13.1 and end of Acts 14 shows that God's grace was powerful and effective in accomplishing God's purpose through the apostles. So I would just say this, being commended to the grace of God is no small thing. It's a profound thing. And God will use that. And when they had arrived together, verse 27, they gathered the church together. And they began to report all things that God had done with them. And now he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. See, the church is more than local. And it's interesting how over the years I'll have opportunity to, to get to know someone, maybe do some ministry together. I want to honor someone who I haven't heard from him. I'm worried about him. He's lost his hearing. But uh, uh, Dr. Oral Steinkamp, a dear friend of mine who did, we did ministry together. We had a conference about uh, rejecting the modern day apostles and prophets. He was a one that was there, we, and I went, traveled to his place and did seminar, and he came to ours, and I had lunch with him, and he's in, toward the end of life if he isn't already with Jesus. Um, but I want to honor him. I didn't know anything about him, but we met each other, and we were at one in the gospel immediately. And imagine what heaven's like when we gather with people we've known. So this is Luke's summary. There would have been many, many more details included. So don't let me give the impression that I despise church history because I do not. I love studying church history because in it, you also see the testimony of God's grace converting people. And it's not always all bad news. But we need to be able to discern the difference between what's biblical and what isn't. And so we're part of church history ourselves in our little spot, in our little corner. And I pray that we can do whatever we do faithfully and see if the word of God is taught clearly, profoundly, consistently, God is going to use that to change lives in a profound way that will echo out across many other lives. Every person in a family has a powerful influence on everyone in that family, everyone in a tribe, anyone in a place of work, anyone anywhere. We're all ambassadors for Christ. And that's why it's so crucial that the word of God be purely taught. Because this is what's equipping you, dear saints, for the work of the ministry. And the better you know it, the more powerful that will be. And the better answers you'll have for questions in your own life. The wisdom of man is worthless. I've got a an, uh, sermon coming up where I'll talk about that. It's just of interest. I'm not saying there isn't anything to be learned from general revelation, don't, I don't want to get 
be saying that. I'm talking about the foolish wisdom that purports to be spiritual, but it's not the gospel. It's certainly not worthless to know how to repair your car. And it's not worthless for physicians to know how to heal sick people, according to general revelation. But when it comes to changing lives into the image of Christ, only the word of God is going to do that. So that was how this happened in Luke Acts. And uh, Gentiles were added to the church and God was at work. So do we have any comments or questions as we got about five minutes here? Yes, Brother Eric. On the subject of, uh, you know, church history, uh, there are so many people who are unbelievers who think they know what Christianity teaches because they see what the church, quote, the church has done in history. You know, and that's a tragedy. Uh, that's something to overcome. Yeah. And, and this is why the point that you're making is is an important one. Um, you know, okay, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Keith Ellison, he's our illustrious attorney general. I spoke with him years ago. I went to a, 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 an event in North Minneapolis. It was before the health care takeover was done. And I spoke to him about it. And his two sons are named Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I said, well, those are biblical names. I said, you should be a Christian. You know, I knew he was a Muslim at that time. And he said, well, you know, I converted. I was, I was a Christian once. And I said, oh, what, 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 uh, tell me about that. He was a Catholic, okay? So he, re- he said, I don't think that, uh, I'm struggling here to, to explain this, but I think he had a flawed understanding of what, he certainly did not know biblical Christianity because they didn't teach it. I'm, I'm sure that nobody taught that right. in his church. So he rejected what he thought was Christianity and became a Muslim. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's yeah. just one example. That's yeah. why we need to know the difference. Yeah. You, you notice lately they had this Ash Wednesday? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see people on TV with this on there? And I drive by this church constantly in St. Louis Park. And I see all these people and I think, does anybody ever even think whether God ordained this? Did God ordain that I can't eat a hamburger on Fridays? Did God ordain that I have ashes on my forehead? Is there a promise? See, what God ordains is attached to a promise. Right? If we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. Isn't that a promise? Did God promise that if you feel really bad about everything and put ashes on, then your sins will be forgiven or you'll be pious or God will be pleased with you? Did he ever say that? No. So if he didn't say that, what if he just went to whoever says that, say, I won't do it. You're causing me to stumble by commanding what God never command, commanded. Why don't you repent and follow the Bible? Oh, oh you can't. Well, what happened? 
See, religious authorities have no power to bind beyond Scripture. Now, you could argue Christian liberty. You could certainly say, I know I don't need to do this. I know it's not required. But I want to put some ashes on today to remind myself that I'm a sinner and I need Christ. That's my liberty. If somebody would say that, well, I would say, you can certainly argue Christian liberty for a lot of things, as long as you're not making false promises or false commands. It's within somebody's liberty to be a vegetarian. Paul said that. But if you're saying, well, if you're a vegetarian, then you're more holy and spiritual and God will really use you, then you're making a false promise and you're falsely binding. Do you see what I mean about church history? We need to be able to understand the categories and make decisions in regard to binding and loosing. What's required and what isn't. What's promised and what isn't. What's liberty and what isn't. And then we'll be free and we'll be safe. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Pastor Eric that as he brings the word of God to us that we will hear and listen and grow. Be with him. And Lord, help us to always believe and trust you in all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.